Music and Christmas just seem to go together. And this Advent season, we are looking at the original songs of Christmas, the carols and the hymns written around the birth of Christ. And here we go. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles open, you got to get them open. You know we have to be in the Word of God, so let's all be in, the, in the God's Word together. Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel is sent to Nazareth. It's in northern Israel. If you want a little geography lesson, you've got the Sea of Galilee. You've got Nazareth, a little, really a little town not far from the Sea of Galilee. And about 70 miles south, you run into Jerusalem. And you're going to find a little later in the story that Mary goes to Elizabeth, who lives in the hills around Jerusalem. It's about a 70-mile journey. So this angel, Gabriel, appears to a young Jewish girl. Now, ready? Listen, this is shocking. She's 12 to 12 and a half years old. I mean, let that sort of settle in. Twelve and a half years old is what most people think she was. And she is a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man named Joseph. So betrothal is like our modern engagement on steroids. It is binding. If you broke a Jewish betrothal, you actually had to get a divorce. That's how binding betrothal was. A Jewish girl between 12 and 14 almost always became betrothed. And then there was a one-year waiting period. And during that one year, it gave her betrothal opportunity to get his affairs in order, to get a home ready, to get his business or his money in order. And then after that year would be the wedding, and she would now be joined with a man. There's a one-year betrothal period. And Mary, this 12 to 12-and-a-half-year-old 12 girl, is in that one-year period when Gabriel appears to her. And during that betrothal period, verse 28, Gabriel said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now you know the word Emmanuel, the title Emmanuel that we love, particularly around Christmas, means God with you or the Lord is with you. And the angel says, greetings, O favored one. Now, what does that mean, to be favored? It doesn't mean that Mary had intrinsic value to the Lord, of which God said, wow, there's an amazing young girl. I'm going to choose her. That's not what this word means. It means one who has been given the undeserved kindness of God. Now, everybody get that. you got to get this. Oh, favored one means that God chose to give Mary his undeserved kindness. And the angel declares that Mary had received this undeserved kindness, and she would be the mother of God. That would be the display of his undeserved kindness. And she would name him, verse 31, Jesus. Now listen, Jesus was an incredible, incredibly popular name in first century Jewish world. Nothing unique about this name. 
but it means the Lord is salvation. That's the name Jesus. The Lord is salvation. And the angel went on and he said he would be great. And that means he would be full of majestic power and glory. And he would be called the Son of the Most High. That's a, that's a New Testament version of the Old Testament title for God, El Elyon. The name of God, El Elyon, meant the God of absolute power and might and had the right to do what he wants. So here we go. We've got the angel appearing to a 12 and a half year old girl saying that God has chosen to give you his undeserved kindness. Here's what it's going to look like. You're going to have a baby and you're going to name him the Lord is salvation and he's going to be the God of the most high. He will have the Old Testament name El Elyon, the God of power and the God of right. Now listen. You got to do this. I have to do this. And it's so terribly hard to do this. But we hear these things every year. We talk about this every Christmas. So it's really easy to just like, oh, okay, how's the pastor going to approach the Advent season this year? You and I have to get into the story. How overwhelming must this have been for Mary? You are 12 and a half years old. Angels had not appeared to mankind for 500 years. All of a sudden, Zechariah gets a, a visit from Gabriel. Mary gets a visit from Gabriel. Joseph's about to get a visit from Gabriel. The shepherds are going to get a visit from an angel, and then a whole sky full of angels. But it's been 500 years of silence, and here comes an angel straight to Mary, who is 12 and a half, saying, you're going to have a baby. His name is going to give salvation to everybody who believes in him, and he's going to be El Elyon. And you have gotten the undeserved kindness of God. How would you respond? What was her response? Well, look what the first one was. It was confusion. She says in verse 34, How will this be? I'm a virgin. I've never even been with a man. How am I going to get pregnant? And Gabriel tells her that it's going to be by the power of God, power of the Holy Spirit, and the baby that's going to be born to her will be holy, meaning he will not have sin. Therefore, the theology of this is that God, the Father, will not be transmitting the nature to sin. So Jesus will be born sinless. Jesus will be born without the nature of sin, something that not one of us can ever say. We all have been born with the nature of sin. Like David, we were sinners even in our mother's wombs. Psalm 51, not Jesus. And to help her believe, Gabriel gave her a sign. Now, I've been telling you in the To the Ends of the Earth series, the signs, miracles, and wonders in the Bible always served the same amazingly consistent purpose. They were always to confirm the message. Because Mary is confused, because she's struggling to really understand this, Gabriel gives her a sign, verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now what is Mary's second response 
humble obedience. Look at verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What an amazing role model for both young people and older people today. Now listen, if you are young, I mean, how many of you appreciated Rachel's leading of worship this morning? How many of you like seeing teens and children active in our church? Do you know why you're seeing that? Here's why you're seeing that. Every Monday morning we have a staff meeting at 9 o'clock. Pastor Matthew leads that staff meeting, does a great job. Right after that staff meeting, several of us stay on, and we have a service planning meeting. And you know what happens every Monday at 1030 in our service planning meeting? Somebody, usually Chrissy Sisko, who is our rock star of a children's director, mentions, hey, our children are not just the future of the church. They are with us now. How do we get them involved? How do we help them experience worship and express worship? So how do we get them involved in the worship services? And that's our aim every week. So Mary is a fantastic role model for our young people with humble obedience. Get involved and serve God now. And I'm going to tell you why. This is amazing. I don't know if you have done this, but I have read an awful lot of biographies of Christian saints in the last 2,000 years. And like you, I've read a lot of the scripture. I've read the whole Bible a couple times. And here's something that I've learned. God often calls his kingdom laborers at a very young age. Did you know that? That's true in the Bible. And that's true in Christian history. And if God is calling your child, or if you are younger and God is calling you now at your young age, listen, you've got an opportunity to respond like Mary, and you're going to see God do some incredibly great things through you. Mary was confused, but obedient. As she travels south to the small town in the hills of Jerusalem to her relative Elizabeth, and you heard it last week with Pastor Matthew here at 2nd Street, Pastor Kyle at Mark Street. The moment that Mary walked in that door, the baby, John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's belly, six months in her womb, leaps with excitement, leaps with response to the proximity of the Son of God. And Elizabeth utters a prophetic song. They looked at that last week. When she was finished... The Bible doesn't put a period of time before Mary responds in a song of strength and beauty and glory. They call it the Magnificat. Do you know why they call it that? That's a Latin word, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. And what we're about to do after all that introduction is really look at how this song teaches us to have a heart of worship even when your life goes in a direction you never saw coming. How can you worship God in the midst of an upheaval? A life storm, a trial, a pandemic. 
We're going to learn how to do that from Mary. You ready? That was all preamble. I hope you enjoyed it. Here we go. You ready? We're going to jump right into it. I'm going to give you three things and a whole lot of sub points. And I don't know how I'm going to do it, but somehow I'm going to try to get this done and the time allotted to me. Here's the first. Mary shows a heart of humility. Now let's look right in the text. You ready? Look at the very beginning of the song. And Mary said, you could easily say, and Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. All right, now words matter. The Bible doesn't waste words. If it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible for a reason. So her soul, her soul magnifies the Lord, and her spirit rejoices in God. Now, what does that actually mean? Your soul is your mind. It's where you think. It's where you believe. It's where you imagine. It's where you have doctrine and theology or distrust or accusations. Your soul is your mind. Your spirit is your emotional center. And together, the soul and the mind, or the soul and the spirit, make what is called the heart, the control center of a human person. Her mind magnified the Lord. Listen, what's dominating Mary, in the midst of this upheaval, she's betrothed. She's about to be marrying Joseph. I would imagine the man of her dreams... They're about to start a life together once that one-year period is over. And all of a sudden, here comes an angel and takes your life in a completely different direction. How's she going to respond to that upheaval? She magnifies the Lord. She's got truth in her mind. And her spirit rejoices emotionally. And this is exactly what makes Christ-centered worship so powerful and beautiful. You know what it means to magnify the Lord? It means that you fade away and God is enlarged. It means we get into the background. It means that we walk off the stage while Christ takes the mic, while the spotlight shifts to him. It's like a podium, gold, silver, and bronze, and God's on the highest, and you don't even want to be on the podium. You only want God in the picture. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. It means to glorify God, make much of God, spread God's reputation, put the focus on God, lift him up so everybody can see his greatness. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. And this was a 12 and a half-year-old young Jewish woman's goal. You see, the mindset of one who glorifies God is humility. Look at verse 48. And she sings, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's humility. It is pouring out of her. Now listen, you cannot magnify the Lord with a proud heart. It is literally incompatible. The only way God can be magnified from your life is if there is humility in your heart. And her heart could not contain the joy of knowing that this baby that she's going to birth, listen, look at verse 47, would save her from her own sins. He was her savior. The Catholic doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception or that she is a co-redemptrix with Jesus is not true. 
Jesus is sinless. Mary is not. She's in need of a Savior. So listen, Christian, if your life is in the midst of an upheaval, then turn your soul, get your mind to biblical truth, exalt the Lord, and let it stir the spirit inside of you to an emotional agreement where you want to magnify God and rejoice in who he is. That is the main ingredients, or at least two of them, of Christian worship. But it goes on, Mary is going to show us not only a humble heart, she's going to show us a heart of gratitude. I had a friend in college who owned a custom-painted, hot-rotted Pontiac Firebird. This thing was amazing. Back then, this is in 1985, 1986, this thing probably cost him twenty dollars to $25,000. He had a lot of money. He came from a family with a lot of money. He transfers to Liberty University where I attended, my college undergraduate. And he gets there, and we became friends, and we would go ride around. And it was amazing because wherever we went in that car, girls flocked to us. It was a beautiful car. Did I mention that? <laughs> we were at a Hardee's restaurant. If you're familiar with Lynchburg, Virginia, there's a Hardee's in town, and we were there, we were buying steak biscuits, I remember this so clearly, and girls were coming up, and they were fawning over him and his car, giving him their phone numbers, and listen, because I was in the car, I was getting attention too, man, this car rocked. I didn't own the car, I didn't give a penny toward the car, but I got to reap the benefits from that car. Now, infinitely more important, take that little analogy and now take it to Mary. This is how her, her young, humble heart viewed her blessings. Verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is, is his name. She hasn't done anything. She didn't do anything to deserve the favor of God, but she was blessed. And she recognized that people would always view her as blessed, simply because she bore the Christ child. Now, I really want you to get this. Everybody, you need to understand this, because sometimes our world, you know, there's three enemies that every Christian has. You've got the devil, who roars around like a like a roaring lion, right? Walks around, prowls around like a roaring lion. You've got the world, Romans 12, that's trying to crush you and mold you into its likeness. And then you've got your flesh. I've got my flesh, and that is the spiritually antagonistic part of my heart that doesn't want what God wants. It wants to defy him. You're going to believe, if the gospel doesn't kill it, that you can actually please God in your own merits. You can believe, if you don't have the gospel of good news, that if you don't do the right things, God won't love you. That's called shame, and I deal with it in Christian after Christian after Christian in our church. It wasn't that Mary was especially religious or pious and somehow caught the attention of God. It's not that God gave a casting call and a thousand Jewish girls came up for the part and Mary won it over everybody else. That's not how this worked. God chose Mary based on his own will and moved from his own gracious desire 
he put his favor on her. A humble heart knows that. And a humble heart knows that anything good, listen, Americans, you've got to kill this in you, and I've got to kill it in me because this is wired in us. We're a humanistic country. And a humanistic country always puts a lot of stock in the goodness of mankind. And if you don't kill it and arrest it with the gospel, then you're not going to understand that anything good that ever comes to your life, it's coming from the undeserved kindness of God. He is choosing to pour out his blessings on you. You did not earn it. Because if we just unzipped our hearts and saw how selfish and disobedient that we really can be, then we for a moment would not trust them. And we would fall on our faces before God in repentant worship. And we would exalt him and magnify him. How can God love me? The truth is that for most of us, we do not contemplate how undeserving and how sinful we really are. Some of, them, some of us do, and I'll tell you who does, and I mentioned it a moment ago. It's those who cannot possibly believe that God could love you because you see yourself as so sinful. That's on the other extreme of humanistic self-goodness. On this extreme, it's I am good enough to earn God's love. But on the other extreme is I am so terrible, God can never love me. Both of those are enemies of the gospel. And the gospel obliterates them both. God loves us because his mercy always outdoes our sin. And when he pours out his blessings on you, Christian, it's because he has chosen to, not because you've earned it, not because you've caught his eye, not because you finally got your act right, and you finally cleaned yourself up, and God said, okay, finally, I'm going to invite you to the table of salvation because you did what you're supposed to do. That is the anti-gospel. Mary understood this. She had a heart of gratitude. And that alone paves the way to greater depths of humility in our hearts. Christmas is coming, friends. How about taking some time to sit in the truth of this magnificent song and let your heart find deeper humility than it's ever found before and fill it with gratitude to Jesus Christ. Where would you be? I mean, answer this question. Where would you be? Where would I be if not for Jesus born into this world to do great things for us. Well, there is one final point that I want to bring as we autopsy, not autopsy, but unzip the heart of Mary and look at what was in there. Mary shows us a heart of godly fear. Now, I think that phrase, godly fear, or the fear of God, is the absolutely most misunderstood phrase in the entire Bible. I really believe that. And if you live in North Korea, or if you grew up in the early 20th century Soviet Union or Germany, then you're going to understand fear as terror, dread, or alarm. If you've been abused by an adult, you're going to understand fear as dread, terror, alarm, and despair. That's just the way it's going to be woven into you. And the gospel needs to unweave it and write on your heart the truth about the fear of God. Look what Mary sings in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear 
him from generation to generation. What does that actually mean? To fear God. Well, you've got to connect it to the next five verses. Let's read them, and then I'll explain them. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And then she sings of his goodness, verse 53, who has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now here's the fear of God. The fear of God is always made of two ingredients. One, it's the absolute confidence that God is sovereign and mighty and sitting over all other powers, yet it's never that he could be away from his goodness. It is persuaded of his goodness and convinced of his power. They form the fear of God. I used an analogy in the first service like this. Let's say that you go into the cupboard of your mind and take out a bowl called the fear of God. And you pour two ingredients into it. One is the confidence in God's sovereignty and his power and his might. And then over here, pour in a persuasion that God is always good and always faithful. You pour equally to his sovereignty. You've got an equal part sovereignty to an equal part goodness of God. And you mix them up and you pour them in a pan. And you put them into the oven of your soul, of your mind. What's going to come out a few minutes later is the absolute persuasion that God is worthy to be feared and God will have my life. Now I'm going to unpack that even more. But start out with that analogy. God is powerful and God is good. So what does it really mean then to fear God? It means to be in awe of his power, his greatness, his might, and astonished at his goodness and his faithfulness to you. Do you see that? Now I'm going to tell you, most Christians that I deal with have one of those in greater extent than the other, and it brings an imbalance in your Christian life. It is to be absolutely believed that God is powerful and mighty and sovereign and utterly persuaded that everything that happens in your life is coming from him and it is a good expression of his faithful love to you. Is it to tremble before God? Is that what it means to fear God? The answer is yes. But trembling that we are in the presence of such a powerfully good and infinitely great being. Trembling because we have caught his loving eye and God never blinks. Trembling because our souls have finally found the one for whom we are created. Not quaking from fear, not trembling from terror, not fearful and despairing, but from the deepest longing in your hearts, you found God because he first found you. When I was in 10th grade, something happened to me that at the time I had no understanding of what was going on. I had a mad crush on this girl and she liked me as well and I finally invited her to a youth group trip that we took to Darien Lake, which is like Dorney Park. I think they own, I think it's the same company that owns each. It's about a three-hour ride, and we go to Darien Lake, and on the way back, 
I remember this so clearly. It is 10 o'clock at night. I'm in the station wagon. Yes, the station wagon. I just dated myself. Of our youth leader, which is full of teens. I'm in the back with this girl. And I am so nervous because I wanted to hold her hand. Would I do it? Finally, I mustered up the courage to reach over and grab her hand. And she eagerly intertwined her fingers to me. And I'm going to tell you what happened. My whole body, I, don't, I could not stop it, started trembling. I was so embarrassed. I'm like, be still my trembling hand. Please, Lord, don't let her feel my body trembling like this. This is weird. This is like embarrassing. But I knew later what it was. It was just nervous excitement. That's what it means to fear God. That's what it means to tremble before him. It's that you have found the one for whom your soul was created. You have discovered the one who is absolutely in control of everything. And you have discovered the one that you know and you are persuaded cannot be anything but good to you. And those two go together and create an awe of his power and a persuasion and astonishment at his goodness. And your body and your soul and your spirit respond. That is worship. That's what it means to worship with your whole being. And that's exactly what we do when our life falls apart in our minds. His mercies are, in fact, new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to his people. So, Christian, and I'm almost done, but I'm going to give you, as we close, two powerful ways to apply this, and they're going to be brief. And first, let me ask you this. Are you seeing a little more clearly the power in Mary's song to anchor you in your worship when your life falls apart? Truly, it is one of the greatest carols ever written. I'm preaching first service just moments ago, and there in my right in front of me is a father whose daughter died earlier this year. I'm going to be tonight with a father whose wife died two years ago yesterday in her 30s. I've got to my left a man who is being used by God in mighty ways and has a stroke. We've got people in here that have lost their jobs. We've got people here that are getting sick. Listen, upheaval is a constant bedfellow of life. How are you going to endure it? Mary's song shows us the way. First, her song is almost purely the outflow of the Word of God. Do you know that in this song she is quoting or alluding, listen to this, to Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, it could go on and on. I'm running out of time. This entire song is filled with the Word of God. And she's 12 and a half years old. She doesn't even have a Bible. Nobody hardly had a Bible back then. They were unbelievably expensive, and they were in the form of scrolls. And when you unrolled them, they were 30 or so yards long. Nobody had Bibles except for the, the places of worship like synagogues and temples. 
She just listened when the Word of God was taught, and she memorized the Word of God. And when it came time to her life going through an upheaval, what came out of her life was not misery, it was not bitterness, it was not accusation to God, it was worship, and it was the Word of God. Friends, listen, if you find your worship to be mechanical and awkward, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not in the Word of God. And therefore, the Word of God is not in you. And that is constantly what we're discovering in our church. There is person after person in our church that's giving a lip service to the Word of God. And you wonder why your life spiritually is so anemic. You will not have vitality, vitality until the Word of God lives and reigns in your heart. So it's time to put off our laziness. And our low regard for the scriptures and fill your heart with God's word. But I'm going to give you the second and final application. Do you know that the most fundamental meaning of the word worship, which we use all the time, is loving service? Did you know that? It's not a cathartic emotional event. It's not tears streaming down your face. It's not hands high and head bowed. That's... The evidence, perhaps, that God is doing something in you, but the greatest evidence in the Bible that you and I are worshiping is that we are serving God out of our love. So did you know that worship means to serve God because your heart is so full of gratitude to him? Friends, if you find your worship stale and weak, Surely the problem is that you have not yet discovered the pride that is storing up in your heart, for pride always mutes your worship because it turns your compass needle back to you. And true Christ-exalting worship, the needle only goes to God. How do you get that needle off of you? It's to have a heart of humility. It's to have a heart of gratitude. It's to have a heart of fearing God. You know how you have that kind of heart? It's to have a heart that's being filled with God's word. A heart that worships in loving response of obedience to serve God. You do that and you're going to find that when that upheaval comes, it will not phase you. It will hurt, but it will not phase you. Because you, like Mary, exist to magnify your God and make much of him. So can you learn to sing Mary's song even when your life and your ambitions and your dreams are interrupted? Can you say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior? You will be able to say that when the word of God is pouring into you and it develops in you a heart of humility, gratitude, and fear. One which does only respond in worship to serve our God from love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Magnificat. Thank you for Mary's song. Lord, I am just so blown away at how young she was and able to sing and to pen a song this rich. It is perhaps the greatest song of all of the Bible. 
And Lord, I pray that it is a song that we can sing, a song that we will sing as a people of God at Cornerstone. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to sing this and that our life would reflect this. Lord, that we would have hearts of humility, hearts of gratitude, and hearts of fear. And Lord, that fear would be to tremble with nervous excitement, Lord, because you are so powerful and so good. And somehow you have set your mercies and your favor, your undeserved kindness on us. Father, may we tremble in our worship. Father, may we pour into our hearts your word. May we take it seriously, Lord, that we cannot make it through a storm in life without being anchored to your word. For your word convinces us that you are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be served. You are worthy, Lord, of our lives. May we honor you like Mary, and I pray that even as we sing these, this final song, Lord, that our hearts would be in sync with our lips, and we would leave here being amazed at the God whom Mary worshipped. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.